0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, as the kids are making their way to their classes, it is again, as it is every Sunday, my joy to invite you to open your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. Revelation chapter 9 verses 13 through 21. Now I think that it's obvious to us the importance that we appreciate God and the gifts of his grace. Think about all of the ways that your life and mine has been enriched because of the grace of God. Think of all of the ways that we can grow to appreciate what he has given to us. There are so many things that he has implanted in our lives by his grace and mercy, and yet they, they so easily fade away from view. We take them for granted, or they just get uh, so jumbled together that we lose sight of the many myriad ways that he has been gracious to us. Think about how our appreciation needs to grow, even for the, the food that we enjoy the love of family, walking out on a cool evening and seeing all of the stars in the sky, if you can get far enough from the city to really see them, really glowing, glorifying God, just as the Bible says in the book of Psalms. Or even think of the greatest of all gifts of His grace, our salvation, that He has given Christ to live a perfect life in our place, to die a sacrificial death on the cross in our place and then rise from the dead so that he might by his spirit call us to himself, which he has, and take us in by grace alone, through faith alone, to his glory alone, and then to continue walking with us through this new redeemed life that we're living by teaching us his word and his spirit continuing to lead us into all truth. Think about how our appreciation for the gifts of His grace needs to grow. But this morning, I want to set our minds on a different kind of appreciation or an appreciation on something else that God gives. Another kind of gifts, and it's going to sound a little bit strange, but it's where the book of Revelation has brought us this morning. And that is the reminder that we not only should grow in our appreciation of the gifts of His grace, we have a unique opportunity at certain places in the word of God to grow in our appreciation for the gifts of his law. That in part is his judgment or his wrath. Now that's an interesting thought. That's one that doesn't come into my mind or heart very often. And I wonder if that's true for you as well. How often have you thought about your need to more greatly appreciate the judgment of God? the wrath that comes because his laws have been broken, the ways that he expresses himself in this world now, and in particular, in in, in times to come. You know, this is one of the advantages of preaching, for the most part, as we do verse by verse through books of the Bible. If we were just to pick and choose different passages that we wanted to preach, I suppose that any of our pastors... I suppose that any pastor would be tempted to skip over certain things that are less comfortable or or not as easy to preach. And certainly these passages would, would fit in there. There'd be a temptation. But but working verse by verse through this book of Revelation has given us opportunities to to unearth, to do the important spade work in our Bibles, to understand some things that otherwise we might just skip right over. We've been seeing a lot of difficult and dark truths in these most recent chapters of Revelation, and certainly that is true again today. But it is something I believe that we need. I think all of us can grow in our appreciation for God's seriousness for sin, and even his judgment one day ultimately on the world. As I look around the world and as even I look at my own heart, it seems as though people in general are just losing any kind of fear of God's coming judgment in the future. Think about the tragedies that we have seen and the way they often play out that those who perpetrate them, they almost seem to have no fear of crossing over from life into death. They have no fear of, of jumping over that line of death from this world into the world to come, to stand before God, it's, it's sort of being lost. Well, I hope that as we look at this, we might too appreciate that, that we would appreciate God not only in his grace and all of the many gifts that he's given us by it, but that we would appreciate the gifts that he even gives us by his law and his seriousness for sin. And so that's where we come this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 9 verses 13 through 21. I want to show you three truths about a dark topic, and that topic is the wrath of God. Three truths that I believe are here in this text and will help us as his people not only to rejoice over grace but to be more mindful of his seriousness for sin and the wonderful opportunity that we have to announce good news to the world, here are the three truths. First, I want us to see that wrath is prepared by God. Second, that wrath is geared for repentance. And third, that wrath is unheeded but by grace. Let's begin with that first truth that wrath is prepared by God. Looking just at the first three verses of our text, 13 through 15. You know, you're out in the world and you talk about uh, important spiritual things or theological questions that even the average person on the street is often asking. They are looking like we are at the, at the fallen world around them and all of the things that are going on. And the ultimate question that comes up over and over again is how can a good God allow evil in the world. It's often called the problem of evil. But then there's another question that follows right behind that, that they might ask if they were to look into the word of God even more, why would a righteous God pour out wrath on the world? Those two questions seem so confusing to the watching world because those two parts in each question don't seem to go together. How can good and evil coexist? In the mind, Or in the purposes and plans of God? Similarly for this morning, how can his righteousness and his wrath coexist? There is a kind of sense in the fallen mindset that those two things are mutually exclusive. They never should touch and they have nothing to do with one another. But as we look at the word of God with minds that have been changed and are continually being changed, we need God's help to keep changing the way we think and see his word The question arises not only because of this misunderstanding, but we see in it a better question. How can the God of the Bible not pour out in the face of great evil, his judgment and wrath? How could those two things not work together when we see the kinds of things that are going on in the world as people who also see the ultimate holiness and righteousness of the God who hold the whole world to account? Well, we know the truth to these answers, that God is quite serious about sin. We see this morning that his wrath even is prepared by himself. Today we're focusing on this topic of wrath, and we're seeing this morning in this text that it comes upon the world ultimately because of his righteousness, not separate from his righteousness, not in conflict with his righteousness, but because he is righteous, wrath is coming and will ultimately come upon the world in the end. Uh, Much of what we're reading about in Revelation touches upon this reality that's happening in the future. We'll also see from this text in just a few moments that his wrath is coming upon the world not only because of his righteousness, but because of the very worst qualities of mankind Things like the worship of demons. I know that sounds sensational to modern minds, but that's exactly what the Bible discusses. The worship of demons or idolatry, murder and witchcraft, sexual immorality and theft, the list goes on and on. But what we want to remember this morning as we think about the wrath of God, as we see it in this passage from Revelation chapter 9, is that judgment and wrath does not come by accident. It actually comes by the wise and righteous preparation of God. As we see this morning, look at verse 13, that he prepared wrath in the future with a specificity of even the hour when it happens. Notice what it says in verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet... Quote, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, and the day, and month, and year were released, so that they would kill a third of mankind We're reading here that the wrath and judgment that's coming upon the world does not happen by happenstance or by accident. It actually happens by the intentional preparation of God himself. I suppose in an everyday, ordinary sense, it's not a lot unlike the way that that faithful parents discipline children. In faithful homes, discipline doesn't just happen happen to occur. It actually comes about because of careful preparation and thought and planning and care to make sure that it is done properly and right. When discipline is needed, it doesn't just arise out of thin air or without intention. It happens how? According to the intention of the parent. Well, here we're seeing God's intention in the future of his wrath and judgment falling upon mankind. We read here that a third of mankind would be killed by these four angels. But what I think we need to understand here, which is a really difficult thought or concept for us to get into our minds, is that these angels are not the kind of angels you may expect, but rather that they are, as this text describes them, demons. We've already seen last week how Satan was then granted the ability to open the shaft of the abyss and that being the place of the netherworld and death and out comes death from the shaft into the world, darkness into the world and these creatures that are surrounding the world in judgment we see even here that these four angels are unbound the Bible never talks about good or righteous angels as being bound only evil angels these are therefore demons demons they had been bound at the great river Euphrates, which as we look throughout Scripture is a way that the Bible talks about a dividing line because between the domain of light and the domain of darkness. The river Euphrates is always viewed as a boundary, and here they were bound at the great river Euphrates. It's another reminder of us of God's sovereignty and control, something that ought to comfort us when we think about these future times and experiences. That he is in complete control. He draws the boundaries of where and when these things happen. Even having them down to the very hour. Did you catch that in verse 15? And the four angels who had been prepared, not at the hour, but for the hour. There's a kind of premeditation, a kind of preparation and planning that fits into God's perfect plan. And yet we also see within this what I think is the ongoing patience and forbearance of God. That in his plan, I suppose that he could have planned in this moment for these angels to kill all of mankind in the world. But here only a third. It seems to me that there is an opportunity yet for repentance. Those who have been granted repentance and brought to faith, we, we ought to guard our focus. Listen to what the word of God says about our joy and opportunity to work for change in the world. The way that Paul talks to Timothy his spiritual son in this way in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says to him, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. This is the kind of focus that I need a reminder of all the time. What is my place in this world, in this redemptive story that is unfolding? What is your place? It's clear from the word of God that our place is to be as ambassadors, as heralds who are announcing the good news of Jesus Christ who saves. The one who is in control, not only of wrath coming upon the world, but he is in control of salvation. He is in control of of all of the people who will come to him and that he would bring them to himself. And that's what we want to be a part of. When we see that God has prepared wrath for the world, It ought to work in us a real sincere desire to proclaim the good news and also to pray, to pray fervently for the conversion of the world. We spoke just a little bit earlier in ABF about this important attitude of prayer that we ought to have for revival in our community and surrounding communities and around our country and around our world. And so here we have every time we read about the wrath of God an opportunity to really pray, to pray with insight about what's coming upon the world, praying that things would be changed, that many hearts would come to him. And this is perhaps the first application of this text for us as a church, that we would double our efforts at praying for revival. Would you think for just a moment about your prayer habits? And I know that your prayer habits are likely sometimes weak like mine, you find yourself not praying for much at all. And even then, you may be finding that you're not really praying very much for these things either. That maybe you're not praying very much for revival in the world. It's not a a marker or a characteristic of your prayer life. Let me encourage you to make that one. Highlight that We need to highlight that in our prayers, praying that God would work now at this point in redemptive history so that people will be saved and that they would be spared by grace from the coming wrath of God on the world. I believe that's one of the reasons why the Word of God is so clear, so straightforward, so graphic. I've heard from a handful of people as we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, Sunday after Sunday, say afterward because of various passages, the way that those passages have gripped them, the way that those passages have frightened them. Well, we want our fright to be turned into prayer. We want it to be prayer for revival. I want to share this quote with you as we think about praying for revival from Jonathan Edwards. And his view that prayer is actually what leads to revival and therefore it ought to be a a marker of God's people. Listen to what he says. It is God's will through his wonderful grace that the prayers of his saints should be one of the great principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. I would love for my life and your life, for the life of our church, to be characterized before the face of God as people who pray extraordinary prayers about the work that he is doing in the world. This will most certainly mean that we'll have to turn up our discipline. We'll have to turn up our planning. Just as God has prepared wrath for the world in the future, I pray that he's preparing us to be prayer warriors, to be praying fervently, and that's going to call us to prepare ourselves as well. So I want to encourage you this morning as we read about this and we see the frightening things in the Word of God that they would drive us to this sincere prayer for revival. And if you find, like me, that sometimes that's low on your list or not on your list at all, to bump it up to the top, to make that something that every time it comes into your mind, you're praying that God would bring revival while there's time, before these days come, before the end. Now, the reason that I think we should be praying for this is because as I see in the Word of God, the work of God's judgment in the world, at seasons in the past, and then the intensified judgment of the world that we're reading about here in the days of the tribulation, and the final judgment before his kingdom comes, I believe that these expressions of judgment, even these glimpses of wrath in the world now, and perhaps even then, because it seems that there is an opportunity for repentance and faith that wrath is even geared for repentance. God, as always, determines, even here, what evil does. This is where we're getting into the real depths of theology and what what does it mean for God to be God and what does it mean for him to be sovereign. And I don't have all of that worked out. I don't understand how all of that fits together, but I do know this. I do know that he is in control. And I do know that no matter what is happening in the world, there's not a moment in time where he's lost control or he's feeling a little, a little iffy about how things are going. He's always confident in his preparation, in his determination of what's happening in his world, even determining what evil does. In the next part of our passage, verses 16 through 19, John sees riders on fearsome horses Going to the four corners of the world, seeking those who are set out for judgment at this time. It is another picture, though hard for us to get our hearts around, of God at work in the world in wrath. Notice what it says in verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen was $200 million. I heard the number of them, and this is how I saw in my vision the horses and those who sat on them. Listen to this picture of judgment in the world. The riders had breastplates the color of fire, hyacinth, and of brimstone, and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire and smoke and brimstone. And here we read it again, a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. We're given some specific pictures or details here so that we can understand what's going on. Maybe a little better. We see here that the breastplates have three colors. Did you notice that? There's red, red, There's a kind of blue and a kind of yellow. It seems that these colors are symbolizing the plagues that are going out into the world at this time of judgment. The colors of fire, the colors of of brimstone, the colors of smoke, the same as what is coming out of the mouths of the demons. The horses kill with their mouths, and they harm with their serpent tails. This is an incredible picture of judgment in the world. As we read about this, it's hard not to be reminded from the fire and the smoke and the brimstone of Genesis 19. We see a very similar picture of fire and burning sulfur raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. But at that time, it only affected those two cities. Here we're seeing a picture of when this will affect the whole world. Why is this happening? Well, first, it's happening because of the unrighteousness of people in the world. Second, I believe and hope and pray that when it happens, it's happening to bring about repentance. That these moments of judgment, this serious worldwide judgment would lead many people to see Christ and to believe in Him. That His grace would accompany these judgments and bring them to faith. This is what we're praying for now when we pray about revival. And we're praying because we recognize why this is happening. It's happening because of unrighteousness. Let me remind you of another passage where we see uh, an incredible list of uh, describing what is wrong with the world. Listen to Romans 1 verses 28 through 32, where Paul says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. Having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Passages like this give us a striking, captivating reminder of why judgment will come upon the world. Ultimately, it will come upon the world because of people. Because of people like you and me. You probably remember that popular, famous quote from G.K. Chesterton, when a news article had asked uh, various thinkers uh, this inquiry, what's wrong with the world today? Asking that they would respond to provide their insight on what exactly is wrong with this world that's obviously broken and falling apart. And you know that famous line where Chesterton simply quips back, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world I am. If you look around the world, take a real honest look, it's not hard to see what's wrong with it. Look at the flowers blooming in season, or look at the stars and moon glorifying God in the sky. Are they what's wrong with the world? Look at the animals doing what God created them to do. The cats being pests, the dogs being man's best friend. <laughs> Are they what's wrong with the world? No. No, with the exception of some, some glimpse of God's judgment in the world, perhaps, when, when some natural disaster occurs. We believe that as well as God's work in the world to bring people an awareness of their fragility and their need for him, that they would come to him. But even then, it's not the creation that's wrong with the world. It's people. People are what's wrong with the world. It's people that are causing the problem. It's you and it's me that's wrong with the world. Now that's an important truth for me to hear, Because when I read passages like we've just read in Romans 1, or I I read about the people in Revelation, or the judgment falling upon the people of the world, I am so easily tempted to become conceited with this false humility that I'm not in that list, that I'm not one of those people. I'm not the cause of judgment in the world. I'm beyond all of that. But rather, Paul also reminds us that we too, are what's wrong with the world, and that we are merely products of his grace, which led us to repentance. The passage I read you just now where Paul goes to that list of all of those things that are wrong with people, then he follows it in Romans two four with this caution. He cautions his hearers not to fall for that conceited trap of thinking that we're not in the list. We are good. We're the people God's really happy with in the world because we've done things right. It's the other sinners in the world that God is really needing to deal with. When he says this caution, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God is leads you to repentance. It's such a fantastic reminder for us of what exactly does work repentance in us. Was it something that we were so smart to do that we figured out that we decided we're going to get with the program and we're going to be the shining example of all that man can be in the world? It really isn't. Rather, we, we were with the rest of mankind until Jesus came down and condescended upon us and came to us and took us to himself. By his sovereign hand, with his grace, he reached down into our hearts and changed us. And he's continued changing us ever since. And in fact, it was that change that brought us to repentance. The very thing that we believe judgment in the world is working for, he brought us to repentance. Well, friends, this gives us another opportunity to consider our own lives in light of this text. That we wouldn't just think about everyone else and the way that they need to change, but to think about what this means to us. So let me ask you this question. What about your repentance? What about my repentance? Is that similar to the way that we've noticed, maybe low on our list, prayers for revival, low on our list of personal considerations? Do we think and examine our own lives as we open the Word of God and we see what He says to us? We look into the mirror of His law and His gospel. Are we thinking about our repentance? Are we allowing a text like this to remind us that that we too, by God's kindness, have been brought to repentance and we should be thinking about that? Maybe we would examine it. Maybe we would take inventory. When do you repent? When do you not repent? How fast do we repent? When you realize that something has gone wrong in your heart or in your life, how quick are you to turn and come back to Christ and to throw yourself at the mercy of his grace? Knowing repentance comes from grace, we want to make repentance our delight. What would it do to the world if they saw more and more Christians in a great army of repentance, not in a great army of self-righteous judgment upon the world and all of those people who need to get with the program before God rains down fire and smoke and brimstone, but rather an army of people that go into the world saying, it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am, and he's continuing to work on me, and I'm continuing to need to repent And I welcome you to come to a Savior who is patient. He's being patient with me and he can be patient with you. We ought to make that a part of our prayer life as well. God, help us to be repentant. Even as your people, help us to see ways that we can rejoice and change. But finally, I want you to see this. Why exactly is it That we insist, or rather that we even rejoice, that repentance is by grace. The last part of our passage shows us something particularly helpful. The third truth I want you to see, in addition to the fact that wrath is prepared by God, and that wrath seems geared for repentance, is that wrath is in fact unheeded, but by grace. Grace. This is one of those passages where in my kind of self-righteousness and conceit, I kind of think ahead about what's going to happen. And when it doesn't go that way, I'm shocked by it. Because notice what happens as a result of these, these angels, these demons being released into the world and killing a third of mankind, these horrible plagues. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I might be tempted to say, well, if these people are anything like me, boy, they're going to repent, and they're going to repent quickly. But look at this. That is not what we find. Verse 20. The rest of mankind, the other two-thirds, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their witchcraft, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. The rest of mankind did not repent. They did not surrender and wave the white flag and and join God in his kingdom by repentance, bowing before him having seen his great seriousness for sin, they did not repent. You know, in this world, when we see warring tribes killing and, and, and one group encouraging the other to submit and surrender to become prisoners of war, and that other group refuses, they say, no, we will fight to the death. We will never give in, much as we've seen, for instance, recently in, in Ukraine. We honor that. We exalt that, but not here. Because this is the wrong move. To see all of this going on around the world and still to dig in one's heels in non-repentance is not the way. But that is what they do. Their response to the deadly scene of wrath shows something about the human heart. I think this is an important thing for us to see. It's important for us not only to understand what this passage is telling us about the future, but what it tells us now about our own hearts and how we can be good ambassadors of Christ to the world. It tells us about the human heart this. That visible evidence and even experiences cannot change the human heart in its sin. It's often thought that that's really what people in the world need. They need more evidence that God exists. If we could just get the scientific facts laid out and we could make this case and we could show them what God looks like and we could prove this and we could prove that, they have no choice. They have to come. But here we see again what we already know from our experience in the world is that none of those things can change hearts. None of those things alone can bring people to faith in Christ. And knowing this will help us in our evangelism or our apologetics. That's a word that means we defend the faith. How we talk to people about the gospel. Knowing this helps us. Because knowing this reminds us that it's only hearing with faith that can bring people to faith in Christ. It is only hope in the gospel. Listen to where else we see this truth played out. Luke 16 You may remember that the rich man dies and goes before God. And he says uh, he asks for Lazarus to be able to go to his brothers so that they could be saved. If he could go back and appear to them and tell them the truth and give them this incredible experience and tell them how they needed to change, and they would. But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. This is a shocking truth and reality about the fallen human heart. It's telling us that even if a person under the curse of sin in unbelief and far from Christ were to see someone rise from the dead and stand before them and tell them, I have been to the other side. You need to come to Christ. They will not come. It's that reminder that evidence is not enough. Why is that? Why is it that having seen what's going on in the world, that the rest of mankind still won't repent? It's because the problem is deeper than evidence. The problem is deeper than the mind. It's deeper than having enough facts that sort out who God is and what I should do with him, and that leads us to faith. That's not what leads us. There's something deeper wrong. The actual setting of the human heart is off. And therefore, everything that the human heart entertains with that off setting is going to result in an off conclusion. And that's why no evidence would ever bring anyone to faith in Christ. One theologian put it this way. He is an apologist named Cornelius Van Til. He explains the human heart and this problem that we're seeing in this text this way. He says, the mind of fallen man may be compared to a buzzsaw that is sharp and shining, ready to cut the boards that come to it. He says, let us say that a carpenter wishes to cut 50 boards for the purpose of laying the floor of a house. He has marked his boards. He has set his saw. He begins at one end of the mark of the board, but he does not know that his seven-year-old has tampered with the saw and changed its setting. The result is that every board he saws is cut slantwise and thus unusable because too short, except at the point where the saw made its first contact with the wood. As long as the set of the saw is not changed, the result will always be the same so whenever the teachings of christ are presented to the natural man they will be cut according to the set of the sinful human personality did you capture that picture later try to bring it to mind or discuss it in community group because it's a helpful picture of exactly what is wrong with the human heart even even mine even yours As long as sin remains, there is a kind of setting that is often slanted to the side and it must continually be pulled back or pulled back once and for all by Christ himself. It only happens by grace. It happens by his supernatural working in our hearts. And that explains why. Even if two-thirds of the world could see one-third of the world fall under the judgment and wrath of God, they still would not repent. Not unless God, by His grace, comes to them with the good news that is powerful to save, the good news that can set the heart right. That's what our joy is. That's why we are so glad to be Christians who love the gospel. Because we have the message. We have the announcement that God has promised to use. In fact, it is the only way. And therefore, we want to be faithful ambassadors. We read texts like this. Because we want to see many people come to Christ. We want to see them changed by his grace. And that happens as we make the good news known. But it also reminds us of how we are to interact with the world around us. We can't simply aim at the mind. We can't keep pumping out the facts or trying to come up with new fine arguments. Those have their place. They can be useful. But ultimately, they will never change the human heart. What do we need to do? We need to speak to the heart. We need to speak to every person we can about his heart, about her heart, about what his or her heart loves, about the ultimate commitment of their hearts and to show them with God's word and by God's help and grace that that path will always lead ultimately to destruction. And therefore, they ought to abandon that ultimate commitment and they ought to come to Christ We want to show the futility of what the world believes by showing them the beauty of Christ, accompanied by his grace. And that means that what we'll be doing is ministering the gospel. Not merely just talking the gospel, not administering the gospel, but ministering the gospel to people, talking to them about real life, about their hearts and their desires, their wishes, their fears, their dreams, their hopes, their trusts, and showing them that Christ is all. Well, this morning, as we come to a close, I hope that in some small way, you and I may grow as a result of this text to appreciate even more the importance of God's judgments in the world. And by knowing what we now know and seeing it more clearly, God's seriousness for sin and the coming judgment of the world, a thought that that many of us and most of the world would rather put aside for another time, that we would allow it to work in us a real joy that we can now be ambassadors of Christ, that we can work for repentance, knowing God's seriousness, not only of sin, but of grace. And that we would do that cheerfully because we know his grace is beautiful and powerful. It can even change the human heart when nothing else will. We know that this begins by coming to Christ first, to begin with. And could be that you're here with us today as our guest, or you're on the live stream. We want to encourage you, if you're hearing the gospel for the first time, to consider carefully what Jesus Christ has done for sinners like us. The incredible work of grace that He's done in the world, and that you would come to Him. That's our prayer. We'd love to talk more about that. If if that's what you would like, we could get together and talk about Jesus and what He's done for us, and help you come to know Him. But for the rest of us who know Christ now, may this text work in us a real desire to make Him known. Who are you going to tell? Who are you going to talk to this week and proclaim to them the excellencies of the God who not only is going to bring judgment upon the world, but even now is welcoming, beckoning people to come to him by grace through faith in the gospel? Let's be ambassadors. We have so many opportunities. We said that at the beginning of the announcements. So many opportunities to be inviting, to be going out and sharing. Let's do that. Let's do that. Starting today. Our Father in heaven, we cannot do it. We cannot do it on our own. We are in desperate need of you. And God, we pray that you would motivate us, that you would use us, that you would strengthen us, that you would enlighten our hearts. Give us a passion, give us an urgency for for people to speak directly to them, to their hearts as fellow sinners who are in need of a savior ourselves. And God, we pray this morning from what we've heard in your word that you would make us quick to repent. Make us the kind of people who, who want to live lives of repentance, who want to live close and joyful with you, And that we would be an example, perhaps, to the world in some small way of just how good it is to know Christ. And how they can come to know Him, too, by faith. Make us ambassadors, make us evangelists, make us apologists. Use us, God, for what we could not think of anything better than to set the heart right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.